Um, few people in history have been more incredibly used by God than Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., I should say, there's sometimes a bit of confusion. Not the civil rights guy, though God used him too. But we're talking here about the German reformer who set off uh, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. We're talking about the Luther who wrote the hymn that we were singing uh, just before. And it's worth saying right at the beginning, he was not a perfect man. As we look at his life, as we look at the things he did, uh, he's not right about everything. He also wasn't the first to articulate some of the truths that we're going to talk about this evening. God willing, another time we'll talk about people like Jan Bus and John Wycliffe, who were a few years before Luther. But God used him to start a lasting movement committed to the truths of the Bible. So first of all, we're going to have a look at his early life and context, if I can get my notes to, to work. So he was born in a world where there was basically only Roman Catholicism. The Eastern churches had broken away 500 years before, but in the West, there was just the Roman Catholic Church. He was born into a land known as the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which covered mostly Germany and a bit of uh, Italy as well, and bits of other countries uh, around it. And uh, he was born on the 10th of November, 1483, just to sort of give you an idea of timings. And his family wanted him to be a lawyer. And they enrolled him into university to do just that. Uh, he was supposed to do uh, uh, law at university. As soon as he got to university, he changed his course to philosophy uh, and decided to do that instead. Uh, he didn't like the course that he was doing. He thought there wasn't enough about God uh, in the course uh, that he was doing. So even back then, he was sort of interested in these things. Age 21, on a trip back from university to his family, uh, a lightning storm started around him and a lightning bolt struck nearby. And he fell down on his knees and said, help Saint Anna, I'll become a monk if I survive. And that's exactly what he did. Um, Fifteen days later, he became an Augustinian monk in Erfurt, where he'd gone to university. Now you can imagine his parents, who wanted him to be a lawyer, uh, were even less happy with the way that he'd gone into the monastery as they were with him doing uh, religious stuff at university. As a monk, he struggled with guilt at sin. He, he was asked to perform religious duties, he was asked to perform masses and things like that. But he was very conscious that he couldn't perform his duties without error, without weakness. And it wrapped him with guilt. It, it felt really, really difficult uh, in his life at the monastery. His superior sought to distract him from introspection and so suggested a bit of academic study, thought that, that might help, and suggested that he do a bit of looking at the Bible, maybe a bit of theology, and that's what he did. Age 24, he was made a professor at Wittenberg University and started to study the Bible. He started to actually look at the Bible in its own terms, on its own terms. Four years later, he was made a doctor of theology. And during his time studying the Bible, he found something incredible. I'm going to read this uh, full quote just because it's, it's worth it. This is what he says. Uh, he'd been teaching the book of Romans and going through and learning it. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardour for the understanding of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single phrase in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that stood in my way, for I hated that phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand philosophically as formally and actively the righteousness of God. 
which is the righteousness of God that punishes the unrighteous sinner. At last, though, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is there by which a righteousness um, given as a gift by God to live, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which he mercifully justifies us by faith. That's what he got his head round. So he thought that the righteousness of God was this oppressive righteousness that judges the sinner. But here he understood that when Romans talks about the righteousness of God, it's talking about a gift of righteousness from God. So in that sense, the book of Romans really set off uh, the Reformation. That's what uh, he understood. And the Reformation did start some years later. But it was mainly set off by something that started to happen in the area. Eight years after starting uh, in Wittenberg, a man called Johann Tetzel came to visit the area and he started to sell something called indulgences. Indulgences, I'm oh, sorry, wrong with me. Indulgences were essentially certificates that promised you time of purgatory for either you or a loved one that you could buy at a price. They were being sold to fund the building of what is now St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City in Rome. And this guy who was going around selling the indulgences, he even had a sort of catchphrase to try and sell them. It translates into English, but the German mind as well. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That was his sort of selling thing. That was his jingle as he went round. What he was saying here is that you could buy time from purgatory. Now, purgatory is the idea of a sort of hell-like place of purging where believers go to pay for their sins that they've committed after they've been baptised. It's a doctrine that was formally introduced only in the 12th century. It was not held by the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's still not, who'd broken away before that doctrine was introduced. Another clue that it's a late addition. Luther would later deny the doctrine of purgatory altogether as being unbiblical. Luther complained to his bishop who had given permission to Tetzel to sell these indulgences and sent him a copy of a document he called A Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. There were 95 statements criticising the sale of indulgences and certain areas he believed the church at large was in error. At the same time, Luther nailed the same document to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, which is basically inviting a public debate on those issues. And now we tend to call them the 95 Theses. That was the 31st of October, 1517. And by doing that, 34-year-old Luther set Europe alight. His bishop didn't reply to his letter, but instead sent Luther's letter on to Rome. And Luther was then accused of heresy. He was told to recount 41 specific things that he had written. Luther refused and publicly burned the documents calling for his recantation. He was formally excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in early 1521 for heresy. And it was up to the secular authorities to enforce what punishment should be brought and how they were to do that. Later that year, Luther was ordered to appear at a general assembly of leaders of the Holy Roman Empire, the secular authorities that were to enforce this ban. It was the least popular regime before Atkins, known as the Diet of Worms, 
joke, never mind. <laughs> it's a council, but yeah, called the Diet of Worms. Um, he was to answer for his crime of heresy. And as he stood up to answer his, uh, what he had said, this is what he uh, said in front of the council. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in popes or councils, since it is well known that they have erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. He was found guilty, uh, still, of uh, heresy. He'd been promised safe passage, so was allowed to return. But from that point on, anyone who was to give him shelter in Germany, uh, or uh, anyone who killed him, uh, well, anyone who gave him shelter would be uh, guilty of uh, uh, helping him. And anyone who killed him would not be tried for murder, because he was seen as fair game. But on the way home, Luther was kidnapped. Really, it was a ruse. Frederick III had arranged it, and he swept him away to Wartburg Castle, where he continued to write, and he translated the New Testament into German, which they'd not had before. He returned to Wittenberg a year later, after a radical group turned up in Wittenberg, called the Zwickau Prophets. They believed in dreams and visions as a fresh source of revelation, and started to confuse the people in Wittenberg. They taught against infant baptism, but didn't teach in favour of adult baptism. They taught separation from both Catholics and the new Protestants that were emerging. Uh, in the end, it ended with a bloody uprising known as the Peasants' Revolt, which was encouraged by uh, the people because they believed that the world was about to end. They thought, oh, we're going to do this big revolt because it's going to be ending. Luther preached eight sermons about them, and after that they moved on. Luther also got married to Catherine, a former nun, had six children, but that's a whole other story. But what it did do was allow him to model the Christian life in a married setting, in a family setting, as a leader, which actually hadn't happened in centuries because they were required to be celibate as priests. So he was able to show what it was like to live as a family in the church. There were some controversies to follow. He wrote things about Jewish people that would make you cringe. He wrote supporting the authorities in a bloody put-down of that peasant's revolt that we mentioned before. When translating the New Testament, he put several of the books in an appendix at the end rather than in the main section, Hebrews, James, Jude and Revelation. But the bulk of what he's taught, we would stand by. And actually Luther wouldn't want us to follow him, Luther would have been pointing us to the Bible. So let's look at just briefly at some of the things that Luther taught uh, at the time of the Reformation from the Bible. They sum themselves up generally as five solas, five alones. Martin Luther didn't come up with them, but he certainly taught them. And as we'll go through, we'll see that the word alone, or sola, is the, the crucial element. If we just said scripture, grace, faith, Christ, glory to God, well, Luther's opponents would have agreed with him. They thought they were important things. But it was his insistence on the word alone that was such a big issue. So firstly, the scriptures alone, not tradition. It wasn't for Luther that tradition had no value. He kept many traditions of the church. What he did argue was that the Bible was the final word, that the Bible is over tradition, that tradition cannot overrule the Bible. 
The words of a pope or a dead leader do not have equal weight with scripture, said Luther. Scripture is infallible, absolutely true, never wrong, but the same is not true with anyone or anything else. It's also sufficient, it contains all that we need to know for life and godliness. So we don't need extra biblical sources to know the truth that God wants us to know. That's one of the big reasons why Luther came back and sought out those prophets. They put their visions and dreams on a level or above the Bible. And in this sense, they were actually similar to the Roman Catholics who did the same with their edicts and councils. Sort of two versions of the same problem, even though in practice they looked very different. But Luther taught that everything and everyone was under the Bible. And that really was the foundation upon the whole of the rest of the teaching rested. Because Luther was concerned with believing and teaching what the Bible says. And if the church or church tradition was a higher authority, then anything that the Bible said could be overruled. You know, the Bible says this, ah, the Pope says this. So Luther reminded the church that we all sit under the word of God, whoever we are. Whether we're popes or pastors, kings or courtiers, we all sit under God's word. The word creates and authenticates uh, the church. The church does not create and authenticate the word. We don't have the authority to change what the Bible says. We don't sit in judgment over God's word. God's word sits in judgment over us. And that's still incredibly disputed, if you think about it. It's still very relevant today. Not just disputed between Roman Catholics and Protestants, but between Protestants as well. But there is no higher authority given to us than the word of God. His opponents said that the Bible was true, important, infallible even, but they said also that was true of church tradition. They said that the Pope could declare things to be true on a level with scripture, and that continues to this day. So Luther didn't ditch all that was said before, but he did subject it to scripture, and if it disagreed that scripture was right. The second thing he taught was faith alone, not works. The official line of the Roman Catholic Church was, and still is, that we're saved by a combination of faith and works, by trusting in Christ's sacrifice and by being good. In practice, this means that your salvation is dependent on your works, and it's therefore uncertain. You never know whether you've done enough to be saved. But Luther saw in Scripture that we're saved by faith alone, by our trust in Christ and what he did, rather than trusting ourselves and what we do. We read it, had it read to us before, didn't we, in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Luther saw it so clearly that he even added in one passage the word alone into a verse. So Romans 3 verse 28, he translated it this way. For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. He was criticised for that, for adding the word alone, but actually some of the Roman Catholics have done that previously, because it's implied by the phrase apart from. So there are already translations that had that in it. What he was saying though is that faith alone saves, not works. Works are there, faith that saves is never alone, Calvin, not Luther, said it, but Luther said similar things. But really it goes hand in hand with the next one. Grace alone, not merit. In the thought of the day, and to this day we are among some, when you become a believer, they taught, you are made righteous. You become righteous, good, justified. That was the teaching of the day. And now, as a righteous and good person, you go about earning merit. So this is how you do your good works that save you along with your faith. 
You get made righteous and then you do them and then you effectively save yourself. Some people do so much good that they have extra merit, um, that more than they need to be saved. So this is the Roman Catholic Catechism. It calls it the treasury of merits. This treasury includes the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the treasury too are the prayers and good works of the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord. And they taught that the Pope was in charge of this treasury, he was the one who could dole out what was there, and it's this accumulated merit that he and the church were selling in the form of indulgences in Luther's day. But Luther said, no, this is nonsense, it's by grace that we're saved, not merit. And justification is not being made righteous, it's being declared righteous. The righteousness that we have as believers is not an infused, inherent, internal righteousness that comes from us and comes out. It's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness given to us. On the cross, Christ was declared guilty, though he was not. And we can now be declared innocent, though we are not. We're not made innocent, we're declared innocent. We remain a sinner and yet become a saint. So we never merit our salvation, it's always the free gift of God. In other words, grace. Fourthly, it's not upon the screen, Christ alone, not saints. Christ alone, not saints. The teaching of the church had come to be that God must be approached through a sort of hierarchy. God was detached and distant, so your access was not direct through Christ, the God-man. But it was through a saint, or through Mary, or through a priest. There became virtually a pantheon of saints, like the pantheon of Greek gods or Roman gods. For a journey, for example, whereas a Greek or Roman would pray to Apollo or Mercury, they would pray to St. Christopher to ask, him to, to ask him to pray to God for them for their journey. Mary was and still is a common favourite for prayers. The, the teaching goes that she has the ear of Jesus, who has the ear of the Father. But what's subtly taught there really is that Christ doesn't want to help you, but Mary and the saints want to help you and they can convince Jesus. Christ must be convinced and you sort of have to know the right saint for the particular situation you're in. And you can curry favour with that saint by venerating their bones and things like that. But the amazing truth of the Bible is that because of Christ we have direct access to God. We go to the Father through Christ, but Christ is God. So we have no need for a merely human mediator, whether alive, like a pope or a priest, or dead, like a saint. And of course, saint in the Bible is used uh, for every Christian. So you already know a saint Christopher. You can ask to pray for you. Uh, please don't call me saint Christopher, though. Uh, I don't think I'd like that. But because of Christ, we can all approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. The distance has been bridged in Christ. The temple curtain has been torn down. And it's not holier or better to put it back up again. God, God appeals to us to, to go to him directly. Jesus taught us to pray our Father, didn't he? We're to approach him. We don't have to go through other people. Christ alone brings us to God. And then fifthly, to God alone uh, be the glory, not us. All this means, if you think about it, that God gets the glory, not man. We don't earn our salvation, so we don't get the glory that way. Saints and popes don't mediate for us, so we, they don't get the glory that way. God gets the glory. And this is Luther's legacy. Much of his teaching got altered by subsequent generations. I'm not sure whether Luther would recognise the teaching of many Protestant churches, even Lutheran ones. 
He would definitely have issues with us over our views on baptism and the Lord's Supper. But God did use him mightily. And we should thank God for him and his bravery in the face of all that he faced to stand up and point us to the Bible. So I'm going to pray and give thanks. Uh, is it alright if we give thanks for the food as well? Or do you want to sing? I'll chuck. Or sing in Christ alone. I'll tell you what, we'll sing in Christ alone. I'll pray and then we'll sing. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Father, we thank you for the truths that are in it. Father, help us not to look to men, not even to look to Martin Luther for the truth, but to look to your word and trust in what you have said rather than what we say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.